It's all part of the plan. DC Talk right here on Get Into Geek. This is episode six. My name is Mitch, here to talk about all things DC on the big and little screens. And we are going to be covering some of the latest news on the future of the DC cinematic world. That will be coming up right now, though. We cannot start without first discussing the saddest piece of news over the last seven days with the passing of the great Kevin Conroy. The man was an actor in his own right, best known for his voiceover work, but renowned as the voice of Batman. First from the animated series back in the 90s through a bunch of other television and animated movie projects, several video games including the legendary and iconic Arkham series that's kicked off a little over 10 years ago and was playing the character up until very recently and at only 66 years old he had seemingly so much more life to give and so much more work to do within the space of Batman. His voice never seemed to age and to everyone, I dare say, he is the voice of Batman. You know, it's funny, whenever we get someone like Robert Pattinson take on the role like he did this year in The Batman or Michael Keaton is returning to the role next year in The Flash or you look at back at Adam West's Ben Affleck taking on the role a couple of years ago, Will Arnett stepping forward for the Lego Batman movie, or the critical darlings that were the Dark Knight trilogy, less so the last one. These conversations always come up over the debate, who is the best Batman? Who's the number one Batman? And even when we try to make these conversations about live action interpretations, it's still so amazing how often Kevin Conroy comes up in the argument. For those of my generation, I'm in my mid-30s, he was Batman on TV. The animated series is still one of the best adaptations of any comic book character, I'm going to argue, that we've ever seen, especially in an animated form. So much so that it was hard to let go of his interpretation for any animated series that went on. And whenever Batman came up in a video game, it's like, well, we want Batman to sound like that guy. I don't know for sure, but I dare say any time an actor takes on the role, you compare his Bat voice to Kevin Conroy. Now, a job's a job, but he genuinely seemed to love playing the Dark Knight. And while we will be talking about some DC TV a little later on in the podcast, it was in an episode a couple of years ago of the first season of Batwoman and the huge Crisis on Infinite Earth crossover of the Arrowverse television show that Kevin Conroy actually got the chance to play a live-action Batman for the very first time. A different character than what he played in the animated series, for sure, but to still see his body carry on his voice to be able to play that role in live action, which seemed like such a payoff and a a thank you to what he had done for the legacy of Batman. And for those of us that only knew him from his voiceover work, it'd be understandable to see him as this imposing figure. After all, he embodied Batman of all characters. But anytime you see him away from the character, he just seemed like such a lovely man, so giving and so loving of the fans and appreciative of the support that he'd gotten along the way. And one of the great things that has come since his passing was DC releasing a piece that he put together for their 2022 DC Pride anthology, where Conroy actually put together a story called Finding Batman, a personal story about him voicing the character and how doing that helped him live as an openly gay actor, which unsurprisingly he says he faced so much scrutiny and abuse for during the early years of his career. So as a tribute to him, DC has not only released his story as part of the DC Pride 2022 anthology, but the entire piece, and you can check that out online. 
Conroy seemed to have been around forever embodying the character, but he was only 66 years old, and unfortunately a short battle with cancer saw him leave us last week. And I know it was such a sad piece for myself to wake up to, and immediately I just threw on one of the Arkham games just to hear his voice as I played as the character, and it really made me want to push one of these streamers. I'm looking at you, Binge. You've got all that DC content to start actually streaming the great animated series of the 1990s so whoever's got to do that make it happen because i know i've got kids and i really want to introduce them to the character the same way that i was and that was through the voice work of kevin conroy Looking to the future, there's some more details from James Gunn and Peter Safran on what the DC Universe is going to look like as they try to restructure what DC Studios is going to all be about, namely a 10-year plan that they are working on. Now, you don't have to go back too far when Warner Brothers had that investors meeting and they basically listed off solo projects, team-up projects for everyone that they had already shown on screen. Cyborg was getting a film in 2019, a year after the Flash movie was coming out and the three Justice League movies that were coming and obviously none of that came to pass but at least this is coming from a bit more of a creative standpoint and James Garner and Peter Safran sitting down to really go hey where are we going from here we've got the building blocks already they've got Henry Cavill coming back as Superman does that mean he's playing the exact same Superman that he started in Man of Steel if so is it going to continue on from the last time we saw him in either of the Justice League cuts or are we simply bringing back the same actor is the suicide squad which is very much a james gunn product is that going to be part of the building blocks ongoing some more details on that coming up soon but what does the next 10 years of the dc studios look like and i always hate this marvel dc comparison thing but if we're specifically looking at what marvel studios have done Who knows how far down the track they had everything planned, but you look at their first 10 years. May 2008, we get Iron Man. 10 years later, we are watching Avengers Infinity War. Sure, we didn't see Avengers Endgame and the culmination of these three phases until the 11-year-later mark, but still, a massive plan that all culminated what we had seen before in these three separate phases that all had their own beginning, middle, and end and different chapters and different portions of the universe universe, whether they be on Earth or in space, all coming together for a final destination. James Gunn was very much a part of that with his two films within the Guardians. He's obviously still got Guardians of the Galaxy 3, the holiday special coming up next Friday, mind you. And he's just a general fan of these characters, so he knows what can come if he and DC and Warner Brothers are patient and sit down and map out correctly what the future should look like. The following quote came from a virtual town hall type meeting with Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav. Now Gunn said, The opportunity to make DC as great as it can be and as it should be, that is the reason why I'm doing this job, because I know that Peter Safran and I can do that. We spent the past couple of days with a group of some of the best thinkers in the industry, the best writers in the industry, starting to map out that 8-10 to year plan of what it's going to look like in theatre, in TV, in animation across the board for these characters. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they are going, it's all connected like Marvel with their TV set in the same universe as their live action films or that their animated films could also be like a side quest of their giant cinematic shared universe. 
There's already been reports or confirmations that the Joker sequel will not be overseen by Gunn and Safran. That will very much be its own project. And it's kind of expected that that's going to be the same with the sequel to The Batman. So what I take from that is that Matt Reeves' Batman is not going to be the shared cinematic universe Batman, and that Todd Phillips' Joker with Joaquin Phoenix is not going to be the Joker in the main continuity, nor are they going to try and bring those worlds together, but they can have these separate entities, these one-off films or two to three film series happening concurrent with an Avengers-type universe going on with multiple characters all inhabiting the same world. The Hollywood Reporter also spoke with Zaslav, who added to the conversation about the future of DC, saying, I think over the next few years, you're going to see a lot of growth and opportunity around DC. There's not going to be four Batmans. And so part of our strategy is to drive the hell out of DC, which James and Peter are going to do. I think they've thrilled the fans. I think they're going to thrill you over a period of time. Now, that comment on Batman, does that mean that Matt Reeves' film is going to get a sequel and then they're going to kill off its future to focus on one singular Batman in a shared universe? I hope not. I would love to see whoever might don the cowl as Batman opposite Henry Cavill as Superman and The Rock as Black Adam. I would like to be able to see a Matt Reeves trilogy or series of films with his Penguin TV show, his Arkham Asylum TV series ongoing and running concurrent to another universe and to unofficially have a multiverse going on. Again, to look to Marvel, since they opened the doors on a multiverse and Spider-Man No Way Home bringing in Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield and the upcoming Deadpool 3 referencing the Fox X-Men universe... The MCU is retconning their own history to have incorporated other studios' films as part of their giant shared multi-universe. I mean, DC is already doing that, right? Michael Keaton, we're all expecting, is going to be the same Batman that he was in Batman 1989 and Batman Returns. If The Flash is messing with time and alternate realities, that opens up the door that the Christopher Reeve Superman series and Michael Keaton and Val Kilmer and George Clooney's Batman universes have always, although unofficially and retroactively, been part of this shared DC cinematic universe. Now, I have no idea what kind of stresses there are involved with being the CEO of something like Warner Brothers Discovery, but I understand the hesitance around making separate iterations of the same character that do run concurrently. On the other hand, I would like to think that audiences are smart enough, and even if only from the last couple of years, with the likes of your Multiverse of Madness or your Spider-Man No Way Home, and kids introduced to it in a fun way through something like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, we would understand by seeing someone wearing a bat costume doesn't necessarily make them a different actor playing the same character that we saw in another film. At the same time, if we have a Ben Affleck series of Batman films and we have a Robert Pattinson series of Batman films, it would be greater time between seeing sequels or growth between those characters because in the end, people are going to get some type of fatigue if Robert Pattinson's getting a Batman movie every three years and Ben Affleck is popping up twice a year in a multitude of DC Universe, DC shared universe projects. We're going to be seeing Batman multiple times on screen 
every year. And in the end, maybe that does cost them money. So it's better to focus on one and go ahead. I want to see a big shared universe. I want to see the DC Justice League world done correctly, done properly, done with longevity but not at the expense of seeing what the Batman 2 might look like and what Matt Reeves might have planned for that film franchise's future. Zaslav did also make comments on what they're referring to as a DCU Bible and that they're coming close to the end. Whatever that might mean, I guess we'll get more details as it goes along, but hopefully... From Gunn and Safran's point of view, they are sitting down right now. They are mapping out a plan, hopefully involving every film that we're seeing coming up, like Shazam, like Flash, like Aquaman, as part of what's to come, rather than it being sort of a final farewell to all those franchises and whatever the first film that Gunn and Safran are working on that we might not see for three or four years to be a fresh start. I would hate to see them working on a reboot while also still producing the end of whatever is still to come over the next couple of years. Now, someone we should expect to see at some stage in the future is King Shark. That does seem like a bit of a weird piece of news to have come out over the last week, but Sylvester Stallone, who did voice King Shark in The Suicide Squad, is currently doing the publicity rounds for his new Paramount Plus TV show, Tulsa King. And when asked about his future as King Shark in whatever the DC universe is supposed to be, Sly confirmed he would be returning to voice the character in some type of capacity, going on to say that he's very good friends with James Gunn after he obviously wrote and directed, brought him on to the Suicide Squad, as well as his part in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. So he might not be a key component of the future of the DCU, but certainly a fan favorite of the Suicide Squad, and we're going to be seeing him again at some stage. Now to talk about some things that maybe don't have as strong of a future as what Safran and Gunn are planning out, or at least most of them. DC TV, we're doing it at the end of every podcast, and I have to say, at least for the next couple of weeks, we're still stuck as we have been the last couple of weeks, where I'm playing out some segments that I had recorded some time ago about episodes that have come out even earlier. So we're back into Batwoman Season 2, the opening episodes of Superman and Lois, and this week is all about what was, at least at the time, The Flash with its premiere episode of Season 7. First up, though, Episode 6 of Batwoman Season 2. Season 2, Episode 6, Do Not Resuscitate. Do something for the show, though. As we said last week, we've been waiting to see some of these multiple storylines come together. And while we're not there yet, this episode is starting to tie things in. And I do emphasize that word starting because, my God, we're still running slow. Once again, one of the storylines had more ground to cover than the other, so they really had to stretch out the weaker one. That story being Ryan and her kryptonite-induced sickness. Sure, look, she doesn't exactly know how bad things are going to get. Only we do. Sort of. But so much of her screen time was having to deal with her day-to-day based on the infection all of a sudden really ramping up after months of pretty much non-existence. You remember back to episode one when she actually got shot with the bullet? We basically didn't hear about the thing for the next four weeks. It's almost like the writers themselves forgot about it. Yvissia Leslie, she seems to be a pretty good performer, right? But she's dealt a really tough card in episodes like this. She's allowed to do very little outside of reacting to people who doubt what she's doing. 
in-world, of course. If you see it's fine. I'm speaking purely about Ryan. Another plotline sees Mary and Commander Kane kidnapped at the hands of some madman who's under the instruction of some very untrustworthy doctors, and they're also acting on behalf of some kind of powerful group that is funded. I don't know what this is. It all seems too convoluted, doesn't it? Surely it doesn't have to be like this and yet it is because we must i feel like we only joked about a podcast or two ago but mary finally has to tell daddy about her secret little clinic all the while showing off exactly why she's been so good at running one this whole time on the other side of things alice and ocean what a show title that is continue to try and understand how they might know each other and why sophia wants ocean dead now part of this backstory we see actually begins to answer a question i had back in the second podcast how did alice learn to fight so well because you know sure she's got underground connections and overall she's a bad guy but she went toe-to-toe with Ryan's Batwoman, who, on top of her high-tech suit and gadgets, is at least a semi-well-trained fighter in her own right. Here, we see that Ocean actually taught Alice to fight on Coriana. What does get me, though, is as we see more into Alice's backstory, she seems more of a grown-up Beth rather than a sort of infancy-type Alice. Her crazy seems to be in check. No rhymey-wimey way of speaking, no over-the-top theatrics, but measured. So does this mean that Alice, the Alice that we've known since episode one of the entire series, is not the product of a lost and abused little girl all grown up with anger and abandonment issues, but an act all along, or at least part of an act? Or is it purely since she was dropped back in the mainland after a convenient mind wipe? All three storylines are tied together by Sophie. Starting her episode off successfully, getting Ryan to snitch on girlfriend Angelique, which helps lead her to Ocean, where she retrieves the real Jack Napier painting that she then takes to use as leverage in trying to free Mary and Kane. And we're back to square one. You want to think that if we don't head to Coriana next episode, it has to be the one after that. On top of Team Bat as Luke labelled them, not myself, who want to find the island to get Kate back, we've got Alice, and by association, Ocean, who wants Kate, and also probably to kill Sophia, and now these god-complex doctors and whoever it is they're working for. Ryan needs more flour to cure herself. The infection seems to be getting worse, and they can only stretch this out so far, and they've done a pretty good job so far. But the closer we get to Coriana, the closer the show gets to needing to show what's behind the curtain. A real Kate... Or a Sophia lie. And considering outside the show, we know that Kate, as we knew her in season one, being the Kate with Ruby Rose's face, isn't going to be there. So it's safe to assume it's all some kind of Sophia lie. But if we as an audience have never really gotten our expectations up for a Kate Kane return, and we know that Ruby Rose ain't coming back, the reveal that her being alive was all a lie will end up being a massive anti-climax. And at this point, they've put six episodes into it. There's not much else to talk about here because, like I said, we don't really progress the story too far. Last week, this week, God forbid next week, if we keep minimal growth in all of these storylines just so they can all kind of catch up with each other at different paces. One thing that I did have to laugh about though was like I said, Mary had to finally confess to her dad, who is a lawman, that she has been running this secret underground medical clinic without a proper license and therefore committing insanely illegal acts. Yes, sure, she's helping people. Yes, so therefore it's kind of the right thing, but by definition, by law, she's doing a very wrong thing. Daddy Kane makes her give it up. 
And then she goes on with some kind of spiel about how she can't believe that he, as this uber police officer, chief of the Crows, would make her someone who's running an underground drug facility. Stop. I get the character doesn't want to do it, but to seem shocked by the whole thing makes her look like a bit of an idiot. Anyway, we'll talk about more Batwoman next week. Hopefully, some kind of progression more than we got this week. Let's jump into episode two of Superman and Lois Heritage. My main concern going into episode two was a worry about a massive dip in quality. Look, I'm not here to shit on the Arrowverse. I'm doing a bloody podcast on it. But last week's premiere episode of Superman and Lois felt like a huge shift away from the norm. And it was at risk of being too good to be true. But it's a nice continuation of the threads laid out last week. Mystery Luther is out to kill Superman. Surprise, surprise. Jordan is learning about his powers. Lois is investigating Morgan Edge, which itself is another step aside from the Arrowverse we know, right? A new actor playing Morgan Edge. And it can't even be a bit of recasting. The Edge played by Adrian Pazdar in Supergirl was last seen heading off to prison. This Edge is a respected businessman. And with Lois and Clark's children being teenagers, you would assume it's set after the events of Supergirl where we last saw Edge. So what the hell is going on? Are we supposed to know? They fe- I feel like they're not telling us one way or another or even teasing one way or another. It's like we're supposed to already know. The episode also spends more time flushing out the relationships, which was its strength last week and will probably, hopefully, be its strength ongoing. Clark and Lois are a real tight unit in this show so far. They disagree a lot, but don't argue in a pretty much a perfect relationship. It's just funny seeing that work in a family dynamic where Lois takes charge, even over her super-powered husband. We moved here to be closer as a family, and we got invited to this dinner as a family, and we are going as a family. So get dressed. You heard your mother. Even the Kent sons, for all of their differences, they come across as good brothers. Jonathan, with his confidence, his popularity, his good looks, and obviously football skills, he could easily have been made into this secret bully, you know, this this guy who really put his shy, not-so-popular brother, who would be relegated to be depressed, nerdy, quirky, loner, who's jealous of Jonathan. I feel like that's what they would have done if these shows were like they have been in other series. But for me, it's far more interesting to have these brothers as loyal friends and then test where their boundaries are. And it doesn't take long in this episode. Baby, you have another bad day? Screw you. No, boys. No. I am sick of your crap, okay, Jordan? This is not just about you. I got the shaft. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What does that mean? means that Don Draper over here kissed Sarah at the bonfire party. So now her dick boyfriend and the entire team are out to get me. That's why you didn't get the playbook? Yeah, genius. I guess super perception isn't one of your powers. But later that afternoon... What happened today? Found out I suck just as much as a Kryptonian as I do a human. So, not not so great. No, not great. Come on, let's get some food. Now, I will admit, I'm not sold once Jordan gets all moody. I'm, I'm not sure if I don't agree with the acting choices and if it's being overplayed, but there's just there's something there that sticks out for me and I can't quite put my finger on it. And I hope that either I get better or that the show gets better with it. It's probably me. It's definitely me. Sam Lane, he's back. He disapproves of Clark's reason to move the family out of Metropolis because it's always great to have the father of Lois Lane stand up to even Superman as his son-in-law. You told the boys you're Superman. Couldn't lie to him anymore. 
You sure as hell could. Sam, you have any idea what you just did? You've ruined their childhood, Clark. I've seen the toll this life's taken on Lois over the years. She never says anything to you, but I know. Now you're gonna put the boys through that same hell? This is gonna keep my family together. No, Clark. I'm gonna tear it apart. Adding to that, General Sam Lane revealing that he has a lot of kryptonite. You have a supply? I do. And you never told me. I'll tell you lots of things. How much do you have, Sam? Let's just say it's the reason the world's in short supply. Why? So no one gets their hands on it and uses it against you. Now this brought on another difference of this show to its Arrowverse predecessors. It's, it's a small thing, but hear me out. Clark arrives back from the chat with General Lane and asks Lois if she knew her dad was stockpiling kryptonite. I think in any other show, the Lois equivalent is offended and she accuses the Clark of not having trust in her and it leads to some tedious, time-filling melodrama that goes on and on and on. Here, Lois offers Clark a glass of wine, understands he's not actually accusing her of lying, and it's a huge breath of fresh air from the way this shared franchise usually handles these moments, especially considering this show has only just started and it's already taking these steps or not making those same mistakes. If not forgive it, you'd at least understand why they would have included that stuff this early, but they don't. And yes, we are only early days, but Superman and Lois is proving to be a problem of the week rather than villain of the week show. I certainly don't think that the mystery Luther figure will be the only bad guy this season. And as I've said, this is Superman after all, and only dealing with domestic issues will get old after a while. But even after two episodes, I actually appreciate the patience to go all out with one of the Mount Rushmore superheroes. It's not just about how much CGI and big set pieces they can shove in. It's much more about a father talking to his sons or a husband talking to his wife. But even with the slow burn, the show is actually painting an interesting picture. Early on in the episode, Sam Lane lashes out at Clark for the decision to leave Metropolis and how he needs to put less focus on his family and more back on the world and probably American issues. We see Mystery Luther attack a military base only to let Lane live and warn him of Carlyle going dark side before a last minute flashback showing that this Luther was a soldier on his world, yes, he's from a different world, under the authority of General Lane. So does the Superman pin that Luther gave our Lane simply say Hell, H-E-L-L, -L, referring to their Hellfire unit on his world, or does the 7734 number code, when you turn it upside down, actually mean something? And could our Lane be convinced of our Carlyle becoming the version Mystery Luther is warning of? Probably. More bite-sized drops next week, hopefully. Oh, and chalk me up as today years old when I realised, or rather, told, that son Jordan is named after Jor-El. I did not pick up on it last week, but Clark naming his two sons after his two father figures, Jonathan being a given, obviously, Jonathan Kent, but Jordan after Jor-El, great stuff, great stuff, and I feel like an absolute idiot. All right, let's do it. After a disrupted season six and a premature ending, let's get into the season premiere, season seven of The Flash. Speaking of, I'd actually forgotten until watching this episode that last season ended abruptly due to COVID affecting production. And to be honest, I actually not long ago watched the season six finale and even still, it's pretty forgettable and I remember next to nothing about it. The whole Miraverse storyline and Iris being stuck in it wasn't wrapped up, but at the same time, that 
didn't feel big enough to warrant this carryover cliffhanger. Again, I know it's not all their fault, but we can only judge what's in front of us. And this episode itself feels more like a continuation than the start of a new season, short of some on-the-run exposition to fill in some gaps. Where is Eva? Uh, satellites have her at second of Walzak. Make that third in Serto. You doing okay? I know the cryopod keeps your residual speed force in stasis, but waking up can be pretty disorienting. Look, I know time is money, but Team Flash did find some to build a new... What, nano suit? At least the cow. I mean, it looks cool, though. The story also feels like it just slots in midway through a season because half of the main characters are gone with very little explanation why. I know that Caitlin Killer Frost had something on with a parent somewhere else. Cisco, I have no memory of. I don't know why he's gone, but some resetting up wouldn't hurt for a season premiere. You know, remind us of where the pieces on the chessboard are and carry on. Like the Mirrorverse and Iris being stuck inside it, Barry losing his speed is a storyline that's still happening. And to get there, Wells is under threat because everyone's got to have something to do. Now, it used to be a Flash tradition that Wells, whatever version we had, would die at the end of the season, or at least until they found one that they didn't want to get rid of. So they found a way of introducing new Wells, Wellses, to swap out and use them whenever they were needed. Here, all of them are at risk with the episode, appropriately titled, All's Well That Ends Well. And the end of the episode does seem to end Wells. This sacrifice, the speeches that feel finite, and the classic line first uttered by the first Wells, even though he was thrown, that we ever saw in this show. You showed me how to be a better person. And I'll always be grateful for our friendship. Now. Run. Barry. Run. I don't pretend to understand exactly why he had to die other than because he had all of the alternate universe wells inside him. So there was a lot of multiversal particles somewhere inside his body or mind or both and that that was able to be used to power some kind of very quickly invented machine, mind you, that would then give Barry an artificial speed force and give him his powers back. But, hey, I don't need to because he seems to be gone now. It seems like a weird time to kill off a character or rather several key characters on top of a Foundation cast member so that part of it, like, it makes me seem like it's not done yet, and what would this show be if it didn't bring back someone the show had already killed? But they sure go to a lot of trouble to make you believe that this is the end. Once Wells disintegrates and Barry gets his speed back, you get that action piece of Flash running through the city like he hasn't in so long and up walls and buildings and jumping across from one to another, up into the sky, onto the plane to take away a bomb that it was going to detonate, chuck it up into the sky, go and land and him watch the debris fall and all of that to silence him get back to the lab and look at the place where Wells once stood, all of it in silence. With the show's score slowly building up, there were no words, there were no last goodbyes because there couldn't be. And all of that, again, paints a big picture that this is over. I find it hard to believe that while Cisco and Caitlin are still cast members of any description, that they wouldn't have found a way to bring them back or to have them not be gone in the first place if they were going to be killing off Wells. 
Maybe we'll explore why that isn't the case next week or ongoing, but for now, it feels kind of definitive. Episode 1, we'll see. Overall, the episode, just a really strange feeling. Like I said, it doesn't feel like a season premiere. And again, I know that they're having to carry over storylines from last season, so you could almost look at this as an unreleased episode from Season 6 rather than being a new premiere episode of Season 7. But, to repeat myself again, we can only judge what's in front of us. And it's just this odd feeling for a welcome back episode as well as Chester and Allegra, all of a sudden feeling like the replacement couple for Cisco and Caitlin. And then we get the little nugget at the end of the episode where bad guy Ava, a.k.a. Mirror Master, realizes that, oh, hang on, she's not the Ava that was locked up inside the Mirrorverse for years from the husband that refused to try and help her and find her. Oh no, she is the Mirrorverse clone and the real Ava actually died and maybe that's why her husband didn't like her this whole time is because he'd already farewelled his wife and she was the villainous clone living in the Mirrorverse. (gasps) Dun dun dun! I even forgot that was a thing that we didn't already know. So, tough first episode back for The Flash. Another sold entry for Superman and Lois. And, well, yeah, okay, we're still trudging along with Batwoman. But come on, we're a couple in. Let's get things moving. As we will continue to do right here on Get Into Geeks DC TV. We will be back next week, episode seven. Three episodes once again. More Batwoman, more Superman and Lois, and episode two of season seven of The Flash. Follow us on the socials, subscribe to the podcast, get into geek, and we'll see you back again for more DC TV. Get into geek.